gather, come gather, friends, close by the fire, and hear of a wondrous tale of goblins and elves in miscoated dells and heroes who strive to prevail. Our hero returned to the inn with young Quinn, had a meal and an evening's long rest. Kilia changed Ali's wrappings and gathered her trappings, and in the morning helped her get dressed. You're listening to Ali Odds and the Ali Odds Squad by Leona Cara. Chapter 12 The Fire Within. Every head turned in my direction when I walked into the dining room of the Harrow Hall Inn that morning. It wasn't the first time I'd had every eye in the room on me. Heck, not even the first time that week. But it was the first time those eyes had been kind and curious, instead of confused and dismissive. Yep, in my shiny new shirt, fitted green vest, blue woolen overcoat, and spiffy brown trousers, I cut an admirable figure. My broken arm hung in a sturdy sling and added a touch of gravitas to the look and I heard whispers break out at every table as I took a seat at the bar counter. Morning, Ali. Breakfast hot. Eat up. Tarver set down a bowl and spoon in front of me. <laughs> Porridge. Of course. He also brought over a steaming hot mug of tea, along with a jug of cream and a dish of sugar. Sugar? Sugar was rare and expensive. It had to be shipped in from Avalantia, so we only brought it out on the most special occasions at home. Ooh la la! I dumped three spoonfuls of it into my tea and took a long, sweet sip. Mm. Thank you, Tarver. You're most welcome. Tarver smiled and wandered off to the back room, barely escaping a collision with Quinn, who passed through the doorway at the same time on his way into the dining room. Quinn approached the counter and wrapped a loaf of bread in a cloth square, then set it onto the bar beside my breakfast. Here, for the road. Ah, thank you. I hadn't even thought about snacks. I guess I haven't woken up all the way. Well, then you need more tea. Give us your mug. Quinn poured out more of the dark brew, then roamed the dining hall, filling the mugs of other puffy-eyed indwellers. In between bites, I reached into my coin purse, pulled out three silver pieces, and set them on the counter. When Quinn returned with a lighter teapot, I asked, Will this cover everything? Food? Lodging? Patience? (laughs) What are you doing? Quinn, I'm going to pay for what you've given me. Put that away. You're not paying nothing. Quinn picked up the silver pieces and put them back in my hand. Three days of room and board? Yes, I am. I put the coins back on the counter. But Quinn picked them up again and grabbed my hand. He pressed the coins into my palm and closed my fingers around them so that his hands were encasing mine. He looked at me with his deep brown eyes, eyes which were shining bright in a way they hadn't before, and said, You've already paid. He smiled, let go of my hands, and turned to stack mugs behind the bar counter. It was such a lovely gesture. I found myself wanting to cry smile, and I felt a huge surge of warmth filling my belly, my heart, my cheeks. I'd helped him get his light back. That was worth more than three nights at an inn. But as his parents were actually the ones footing the bill, I hid the coins beneath the sugar dish when Quinn wasn't watching. When I finished breakfast, Quinn helped me shuffle on my pack, and I made ready to depart. Kilia gave me a friendly hug and said, You be safe out there, you hear? A few scars on a gal ain't bad when no one can see them, but best keep that pretty face out of harm, eh? Gosh, this family would make me run out of blushing if I didn't leave soon. Tarver stepped forward with an outstretched hand, which he then swapped for the other hand, since my broken arm prevented me from shaking as usual. It was a pleasure to meet Charlie. Be careful on the road ahead. Joe and Graham ain't to be taken lightly. Yes, sir. 
He leaned in close and whispered, low enough that Killy couldn't hear, Make them bastards pay, huh? <laughs> I'll do my best. Aye, there's a good lass. Last of all, Quinn stepped forward. At first, he reached out for a handshake, then raised his arms for a hug. I raised my good arm to match his embrace, but then he put his arms back down for a handshake, which meant I lowered my arm, too, but when I reached out for the handshake, he went back in for a hug, and eventually we just ended up holding each other's shoulders and patting them awkwardly. Kilia watched the whole interaction with an appraising eye. You're sure there's nothing we could do to convince you to stay? Um. Quinn and I ended our strange embrace, and I turned to Kilia. Unless you've been keeping Joe and Graham upstairs, I best be off. Oh, don't I wish, Tarver said, punching his palm in a hopeful display. Nah, I, I really appreciate your kindness and hospitality, but I've got to go meet my friend. Understood, lass. Understood. The Olmswiths walked me out of the inn, and with a final collective breath, I stepped away. But barely had I stepped, then I stopped, and turned around to face the family. I almost forgot. Which way is old Maddie's shop? I'd still like to thank him for pulling me off the road. Ah, he'll be to the west of town. Out towards the bridge. You can't miss it. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, bye. Goodbye. Farewell. Come back soon, you hear? Quinn could use help with chores. Mum! With one last blush, I plodded away towards old Maddie's shop, as Quinn, Tarver, and Kilia waved from the door. It was a cloudy day, and I worried I would have a drizzly walk back to Beleth if I didn't hurry. So I headed to old Maddie's as fast as my broken ribs would allow, hopeful to reach the Elfwoods before the sky grew any darker. The few people mulling about the main road of Harrowdelf paused in their work once again to gape at me as I passed, and I heard murmurs of, It's that adventurer, girl, whispered under breath. I pretended not to notice, but I admit my posture was a bit straighter than usual. I walked out of town and away towards the bridge, where Quinn and I had talked about curtains and lights the day before, and soon I heard the faint clang of metal on metal in the distance. It grew louder and louder as I neared the bridge, and before long, it led me to a wood-planked building attached to a stone cottage. The door was open, and I could see blackened walls with hammers, tongs, and tools hanging from iron hooks, and several work tables scattered with metal in various states of completion. The floor was dirt, and was littered with scraps of beaten steel. I stood in the open doorway for a moment, watching a scrawny young chap lift a hammer and swing it against a piece of orange steel atop an anvil. Glowing flakes of metal flittered away when the hammer struck, and then uprose the hammer for another blow. Watching the young lad with a trepidatious scowl was a squat, stocky man who bore a gristly red beard and wild orange hair. His neck was thick as a kettle, and based on the furrows that deepened in his brow with each metallic clang, his kettle was about ready to boil over. He stepped forward and waved for the young man to stop mid-swing. No, no, you've got to draw it out further before you start the taper. I've no use for a half-inch nail. No, sir. Sorry, sir. Oi, what are you doing? Draw it, I said, not spread it. Damn boy, did you leave your hat at your mother's house? Ah, leave off. The steel's gone cold. Back in the fire, boy. Without meeting his master's glowering gaze, the lad regripped the tongs that held his flattened nail and buried his work back in the glowing coals of the forge. He strode to the bellows and pumped a wooden lever, which blasted gusts of flame into the coals and made the fire glow brighter still. I took this pause of labor to knock on the doorframe. Excuse me? The red-bearded man looked up at the sound, and a wide smile spread across his face. Ah, so you've made it through, then. Fancy that. Oi, Darg! It'd be the gal we found with her snoot in the dirt the other morning. Thought you'd be dead. Not yet, thankfully. Ah, well, isn't that grand? It is. In fact, I came here to thank you. 
I'm heading out of town, and I didn't want to leave without- ah! Out with the dirg! You want the poor steel to melt? No, sir. Is, is, is that even possible, sir? Why, enough with your philosophizing and get to drawing. Two inches before the taper, you hear. If you paid as much attention to your work as you're given this here lady, I'd have a real apprentice by now. Sorry about that, miss. The boy lowered his head and pulled his work from the forge, white hot from the fire, and began pounding away at the anvil. Old Matty shook his head at the boy and sort of lurched forward in my direction. I saw that his left leg was bound in a strange metal brace with shiny rivets fastened to the limb by thick leather straps. He more or less dragged the leg behind him as he walked, which gave him a hobbled gait. I noticed his left arm seemed emaciated compared to his hulking right arm and hung limply at his side and the left edge of his mouth drooped downwards as well. He caught me staring at his mechanical leg and nodded down to it. A stroke. Years back. A stroke of tragedy, some have called it. A stroke of fate. Stroke of opportunity to some twisted minds in this town. Ah. But in the end, it led to a stroke of genius, he said proudly, shifting his hips so that his metal brace shimmered in the forge light. He looked over his shoulder at his young apprentice and scowled. Stroke of annoyance today, anyhow. Poor keeps me from doing my own work. Ah, there we are. Your name, miss? He stuck out his meaty, soot-covered right hand, and I gripped it awkwardly with my left. Ali. Ali odds. And you are old Matty. Aye, as oak is to acorn, so that name be to me. Tarver and Kilia told me you're the one I have to thank for my life. Aye, the boy and I were on our way into town when we saw a lump in the road where we ain't used to seeing no lumps. Responsive as a rock he was, and broken and bloody to boot. I got you loaded onto our donkey there, Mr. Binky, we called him, and got you carried into town. My brows instinctually crinkled at the image of this half-crippled man lifting me onto a donkey all by himself, and old Matty saw my expression. The boy might have helped a bit. Right, well, I thank you both. Is there anything I can do to show my appreciation? I don't have too much money, but... Ah, no, no. Keep your coin. A good deed should be left to that, and nothing more. Although, if you or anyone else you know is looking to be a smith, that would be most useful. He looked back at the young lad by the anvil, who had paused his hammering to hold up his now bent nail at eye level and was examining it with the intensity of a jeweler. Aye, you bent it. Don't need a magnifying glass for that. Back in the forge. You're a worthless lad, I swear. Recent hire? Aye, I've needed some help around the shop lately. Because Laurel left. Old Matty narrowed his eyes, and all the heat in the forge seemed to press in on me. But I stared him right back. I meant to say it this time. He was the last player to meet in the story of love and heartbreak that had unfolded here in Harrowdale, and I was curious how he figured into things. What do you know of Laurel? Not much. Just that she's your daughter. Then she left town recently. Old Matty fixed his stare on me good and hard, as if trying to gauge the temper of my steel. He must have been inundated with locals hunting for gossip about his daughter, and most likely figured I was after the same. But I was growing used to putting on a mask. I held firm, betraying nothing of my deeper knowledge, and holding a perfectly neutral composure as old Maddie's face twitched with anger. I have no daughter. Old Maddie spat in the dirt and turned to walk back to the anvil. His young apprentice had been eavesdropping, as evidenced by the frantic hammering that ran out as soon as old Maddie turned around. Oi, what in the blazes are you doing now? Making a spoon instead of a nail? Of all the good-for-nothing rabble in this world, son, you are the worst. Start it again. But, sir, I could- Again, I say. You worthless mound of maggot meat! What does your mother feed you in the morning? Turds! 
that seemed like my cue to leave. Thank you once again for saving my life. Take care. And then seeing the wrath on old Maddie's face, as he lifted the back of his hand as if to strike the boy, I said, please, go easy on him. It, it's not his fault. Not his fault, eh? What you saying? Nothing. I, I only meant... Old Natty grabbed a hammer off a workbench and began lurching towards me. I backed away towards the door. Goodness, couldn't I just leave well enough alone? Well, I... I mean... What's not his fault? You know something I don't about smithing. No, it's... Uh, your pain. Your anger. They're not his fault. Laurel... Old Matty smashed the hammer down on a table when I said the name, scattering several tools onto the floor. What's all this about Laurel? You know her? No, 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 I, I don't. I... Old Natty looked me up and down with a manic gleam in his eye. Not wearing a dress like all the other girls, now are we? Traveling in the woods by ourselves, talking out of order. You ain't one of her type now, are you? Her type? What? No! My back hit the wall, and my hand scrambled to find the doorway. Old Natty pointed his hammer at me as he continued to drag himself forward, step by step. But you do have a queer look about you, now don't you? Almost like one of them elves, eh? Putting trousers on women. Unnatural it is. That does seem to be the opinion here. I really should be going. My hand found the doorway, and I slowly pulled myself through, just as a strange darkness fell over Maddie's eyes. Are you the one? Bye! I walked away from the shop as quickly as my injuries allowed, but old Maddie lurched out the door after me. Are you the one my daughter was low with? I Come back here! I'll kill you! I'll kill you dead! I turned around to see how close he was, just in time to see him hurl his hammer at me. Ah! It hurtled end over end towards my head, and I ducked, barely dodging it, and it thudded into the dirt in front of me. I picked up my pace to a run, which did not feel good on my ribs. I turned back to see that old Maddie had fallen over, and was tearing out tufts of grass with white-knuckled hands, shouting, I swear I'll kill you! If I ever see your face again, I'll kill you! Bah! I'll never forget the red of his face as I ran, fiery as his forge. When I reached the trail that led south from Harrowdelf towards Beleth, I slowed down to a walk. Ah, my ribs. Ow, cheese and crackers. Ah, my head. Oh, it felt like his hammer had hit as it throbbed and throbbed from my previous wounds. Gee, that was, that was the worst thank you experience I'd ever had. How could someone be so ready to save my life and then so ready to destroy it? That poor boy. Being trapped in there with that anger-warped man. Ugh! I understood why Laurel left. If that was what I came home to every day, I would have run away too. Gosh, I felt bad for Harrow Delph. For everybody there. Here was a story that could have been about love and joy and acceptance, but had been warped into sorrow by hate. Funny, I'd had a similar conversation with myself leaving Beleth, about how all hate does is hurt. Well, Harrowdelf served as another example of the heartache and havoc that hate can cause, even though the root of it all was love. What a confusing world it can be. It was times like this that I miss Granbauer the most. I wished he was there to talk to as I walked the wooded miles back to Beleth. Everything had become so complicated lately. Suddenly, people I cared for were also people I really disagreed with. I had begun lying so as to honor another person's truth, and I had projected an image of my values that wasn't fully honest. I'd been shunned by elves for being human, and had they known, I would have been shunned by humans for being with the elves. Yeah, 
I could have really used a good old-fashioned goat chat, but alas. Granbower was still a captive of the Jolly Robbers, so I had to take counsel with myself as rain started falling. I pushed through the woods without stopping, eager to get out of the drizzle, and before long, the looming trees of Beleth blotted out the sky. The tips of the trees dissolved in the low-hanging clouds, and the understory was impenetrably dark. As I neared the stark line where the pithy maples and elms of the outer woods gave way to towering evergreens, I felt a strange tingling bloom in the center of my forehead. Ah! Moranga's blessing! I was worried it had worn off when I left. I raised my hand to the spot, and once more saw a pale white light reflected on my fingertips. Gosh, I, I really wish I could see what it looked like. I'd have to find a looking glass or a pond or something. It's not every day you get a magical glowing symbol on your forehead. But more than for fashion, I was glad to have the blessing for function, as I figured it would spare me from experiencing the ill effects of the guard, as I had before. I entered Beleth cautiously, listening to my body for any indication that the guard was still in effect. The forest was damp and dark, but that wasn't surprising, what with the rain clouds dragging their way through the needly boughs like phantoms. After a few paces, I felt a distinct pressure shift in the air, and I shuddered. Oh no, the guard! Did the forest not remember? Darkness rose like smoke from the ground, and my chest seized in sudden panic. No, 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 this, this wasn't supposed to be happening! I had been given permission to be here! The elves had allowed it! Dark vapors crawled towards me in swirling tendrils of blackened mist. I rubbed my forehead with my palm, hoping it might turn on Moranga's blessing again, but the darkness crept onwards. In my frenzy, I found myself pleading aloud to the forest. Oh, come on, trees! The elves said I could be here. I don't want to hurt you. Can we just be friends? Please, I, I promise. I'm your friend. This unexpected speech gave me an idea. I fell to my knees and pressed my hands upon the earth. I closed my eyes and attempted to soul-send with the very soil, to tell it I meant no harm, to tell it I really was its friend. And then I felt something crawling atop my hand. Darn it. The darkness was taking hold. But no. Not darkness. Quite the opposite. A warm glow, as if threads of light were skittering their way across my hand, joining and weaving in a feather-soft embrace. A light I didn't need eyes to see. And then I felt it. A rhythm. Like a heartbeat. The very pulse of the forest. And I could see it. With my eyes closed, I could see it. A vast network of intertwining roots and, and thread-like strands so numerous it would have made the world's top weavers weep. I laughed out loud, overwhelmed by the incredible thrill of such intimacy, and I felt a surge of warmth rising up my arm and through my body with every pulsing beat. It did not use words. It had no voice. But I heard the forest that day. I heard it well. It was my friend. I was welcome. I could continue on. The pulses faded. I opened my eyes and saw a glowing green expanse of hair-like tubes covering my hand like a luminescent glove and twining up my arm. I watched as the glow faded, as the tubes withdrew, and gradually, as if nothing remarkable had happened, the threads receded back into the earth. I rose slowly, struggling to grasp what had just happened. How grand! How wonderful! The darkness abated, and the air smelled damp and sweet, and, and the woods felt light, though they were still shrouded in clouds. So, feeling thus illuminated and elated, I walked on, 
and everywhere now there was beauty. Mist clung to a spiderweb, tracing its threaded thoroughfares with unminable gems. Mushrooms glistened in the damp. Creeks bubbled and skipped and danced and pranced, full of joyous rain. Droplets fell on my head and shoulders from above, and the moss, oh, the moss was the greenest green green ever greened. I had never experienced such lusciousness in a forest, and I must say, Beleth was somehow even more enchanting when it was wrapped in a shawl of mist. The closeness I had felt so stifling before now felt like a blanket of safety, and I wondered how I had possibly found fault with this land when I had set forth for Harrowdale three days past. My steps came easily. The pain in my ribs all but faded. I even began to whistle a tune. I was so delighted with myself and my connection with this forest. But then out of nowhere, an arrow pierced the ground before my feet. Ah! The fletching was white and gold, the shaft black as midnight. But who had shot it? No sooner had I asked the question than I saw a figure descending the trunk of a nearby tree. It was a person, an elf, of course, wearing bark-brown clothing, a cedar-green cowl, sporting a quiverful of golden-white fletched arrows on one hip and bearing a sheathed sword on the other. The elf used the deep grooves of the thickened bark as hand and footholds, having slung their bow over one shoulder, and effortlessly they left the last twenty feet to land gently on the needle-soft dirt before me. So, the Trangith returns. Ugh. Hello, Theron. I was wondering if you'd turn up again. You left without saying goodbye. After all that had happened in the last few days, I was not in the mood to humor his self-righteous taunts. I plucked his arrow from the ground and shoved it into his chest. You missed. Did I? My mistake. Theron stared me up and down, noticing that my right arm was braced with sticks and bound in a sling. Got into a scrap, did we? I dare say it's an improvement to your visage. Whatever. I walked past him, following the trail Trenia and I had taken three days prior, hoping it would take me back towards the Lothrin. Where do you think you're going? Somewhere dry, I said without stopping. Honestly, more than anything, I just wanted to lie down. But with a few graceful steps, Theron cut me off. Alas, you may go no further. Alas, I will. I tried to brush past him, but he stepped with me, blocking my path. It is my duty as a protector of this realm to escort you from the premises at once. What? No, I, I'm allowed to be here. Your tribe voted. Even the guard let me pass. The guard makes mistakes. No, once you left the forest, your welcome was withdrawn. He put an arm on my shoulder as if to walk me back to the border, but I shrugged him off. Then why do I still have this? I pointed to the spot above my brow. What? An empty head? No, this! The moonshiny thing! I rubbed my forehead again, hoping it would glow this time, but Theron's expression told me nothing was happening. Dang it, well, it is there. It glowed when I entered the woods again. Your tribe said I can stay here until the full moon, and by my count, that's still three nights away. If you came back to see Trenia, it's no use. She is still in reflection and cannot speak. Why not spare yourself the walk and turn back to Trengith lands now? I can communicate anything you'd wish to tell her when she's released. <laughs> Fat chance I'd trust you to do that. Well, perhaps you might reconsider, if you knew Trenia has pledged to renew her kin rights. My stomach dropped. I stared at Theron, trying to discern if he was telling the truth. Oh, come now. You know that's why she returned. She belongs here with her people. If you journey to the Lathroin, you will arrive only to return to whence you came. Tell me what you wish, Trenia, to know, and I will pass it on. The anger I felt towards Theron in that moment helped me fight back the tears that were welling up. I glared at him. She will hear it from me, sir. 
and no one else. Least of all the likes of you. Once more, I tried to step past Theron, but this time his hand struck out like a snake and snatched my broken arm above the wrist. Fool! I winced and tried to pull away, but the pain became so intense I cried out. Ah! Caught in primal panic, I felt a fire roar to life inside of me. It filled my blood with a wild heat, and suddenly I felt quite comfortable with the idea of violence. I could kill Theron. I could destroy him. Rip him to pieces. Tear out his heart. Drain him of every last drop of his precious elven blood if I wanted to. And I did want to. I reared my neck back and let out an alarmingly good battle cry, preparing to smash Theron's face in with my forehead. But all of a sudden, my moon markings lit up and illuminated Theron's face. At the same time, a blinding light shot out of Theron's hand where it was clamped around my wrist. This so surprised me that I stopped my cranial assault mid-arc, and Theron, likewise shocked, let go of his grip. The fire continued burning in my belly, awaiting its violent exodus. But I held it back, smothering it with controlled breaths, until the heat began to subside. Both of us stared at Theron's hand, at the luminous drawings that shined as if a shaft of light had punched its way through flesh and bone so that the markings beamed brightly front and back. I held my fingers up to my forehead, wondering if there was light shining out of the back of my head, too. But my glow slowly faded. It did not do so on Theron's hand, however. No, it stayed light and bright, a clear image of four little moons connected by a circular line, one waxing, one waning, one dark, one full. And in the middle of the circle, there was a glowing disk of red. Blood red. Is that... is that what mine looks like? I hadn't noticed red light coming from my markings. Theron pulled on his sleeve, trying to hide his hand, but the marks beamed through the knitted fabric. Why is yours red? Is that supposed to be a moon? I don't know. He tried rubbing the mark with his other hand, then on his tunic. But just as my attempts to activate my marks hadn't worked, neither did his attempts to remove them. I don't think that's going to go away. Shut up, Trangith. What do you know of anything? Theron stuck his hand into his tunic to hide the marks and stormed off, muttering angrily to himself in Nervangan. Well... I guess that put an end to that. Ugh. My arm. As if everything didn't hurt enough already. I let Theron walk ahead and out of sight before I continued on down the path. The last thing I needed at that point was more of his company. I was worried that the fire I had felt might come back. It scared me. I had genuinely meant to kill him. I had even made a move to do so. Me! Without the heat of that internal blaze warping my thoughts, I could see how foolish that was now. In my broken state? Weaponless? Weary? How had I become so convinced I could hurt him? Was it this self-same fire that made old Maddie throw his hammer at my head? That made Quinn destroy Laurel's sword and stand silent as she was flogged in the streets? Maybe. But I couldn't think about it then. I was done. The fire had burned through the last store of energy I had left and my weariness caught up to me. As I pressed forward, I debated on whether or not I should just call it a day when I made it back to Eek to Inns, or if I should still seek out Trenia and fill her in on all that had happened in my three wild days away from Beleth. But, if Theron was telling the truth, she couldn't talk to me anyways. And it was already growing dark, and I really didn't feel well, so I decided to let my body decide. Body's no best in these matters. When I finally got to the glade outside Iktuin's tippy-toe tree, my body yelled, STOP! Even the parts of me that weren't injured felt achy, 
and alongside the dribbles of rain running down my face, my nose unleashed a trickle of mucus that I had to keep wiping away with my waterlogged sleeves. I was soaked through, and had no dry clothing to change into. On top of it all, I realized I hadn't even eaten a bite of the bread Quinn had packed for me. Holy hazelnut, had it only been that morning that we said goodbye? I sat in the moss outside Iktween's home, too tired to undress, or set up my bedroll, or even take off my pack. In fact, I was so weary from the day's adventures that I fell asleep where I sat in the rain, leaning back against my pack, head lolling to one side. At some point, I felt a hand on my shoulder, and I looked up to see Iktween and Leif standing over me. Iktween placed a palm on my forehead. Trangus indeed. You're burning up, poor girl. They helped me to stand, half awake though I was, and walked me towards their tree dwelling. No, 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 I, I've got to go see Trenia. I've got to tell her, I've got to tell her about stuff. Not in your condition. Layeth the door. They brought me through the green door and down the rudy steps, through a small tunnel and into a dimly lit room. Layeth scurried away to the kitchen, while Iktuin took off my pack, peeled off my damp garments, and laid me down into an unfathomably soft bed. Jeez. First Quinn's family had brought me in off the street, and now Trenia's. I was not doing a very good job of taking care of myself. What would all those people who had eyed me with admiration at the Harrow Hall Inn think if they could see me now, splayed out and delirious from a single day's misadventures? I was about to drift off again when Leif reappeared, and handed a steaming cup to Iktuin, who lifted my head and brought the cup to my lips. Drink, for the fever and the pain. I did as she said, and drained the mug in a few gulps. It tasted grassy and spicy and chilly all at the same time, and made me cough. But the pain in my head, my arm, my chest, my heart, all of it washed away, and I fell asleep, the image of the blood-red circle on Theron's hand transforming into dreams. Dreams of forges. Dreams of fire. Dreams of a blood moon rising. Thanks for listening to Alley Odds and the Alley Odds Squad. I'm Leona Cara. Visit me on Patreon.com, where I post all manner of world-building content, updates about new episodes, and super special secret goodies that I can't tell you about here because they're super special and secret. Visit me on Patreon.com forward slash to learn more and support this show for as little as a dollar a month. I hope you have a magical day, and I'll see you around the fire for the last episode of this batch, Chapter 13, Blood Moon Rising. Mm-hmm.